Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We're going to look together in God's Word at a portion of where we um, stopped last week. We will begin and then move on into the next chapter, which is a chapter that's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives after a full day of, of, of serving God by working in the temple, teaching in the temple, confronting the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests in the temple. And so I invite you to stand as we read together Matthew 23, 37 through the end of the chapter, it's just a couple verses, and then the first two verses of Matthew 24. This is the word of God. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And coming out from the temple, Jesus was going along and his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left on another, which will not be torn down. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And raising your hands, if you will, let's ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will add your blessing, your spirit to the, to the words of man this morning, that you'll speak to us and that you'll be present in our midst and that you will give your power and bring conviction to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are immediately after this week going to begin the Olivet Discourse, which begins in 24, chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 3, with as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, so he's leaving the temple where he's worked all day. Um, he has just declared his sorrow over the city of Jerusalem, declared the fate of Jerusalem. And, and leaving the temple, the disciples point out to him the buildings, and he responds to that, and then we enter into the Olivet Discourse. So this is the introduction, Matthew's introduction, the events that took place prior to the Olivet Discourse. They are what precipitates the teaching of the Olivet Discourse. They're tied to it very clearly, both by Matthew and in the logic of the thing and in time. They're part and parcel of what follows. And I think it's important to understand that this morning because the Olivet Discourse is an area of Scripture that has caused, especially over the last century and a half, a lot of debate. And the question is, are the events that are described by Christ, prophesied by Christ in Matthew 23, primarily events that were fulfilled in the sacking of Jerusalem, or are they still future? The one view it's called preterist, that means past, and that view says, oh, these things are past. The other view is called the futurist view, that they're still in the future. 
Now, no one doubts, no one denies that some of these events are fulfilled in the sack of Jerusalem. Some of the things that we're going to be reading about in the verses to come were clearly fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus Vespasius in 67 to 70 AD, sort of a rolling destruction. And, uh, and so neither side disagrees that there is some element of prophecy about what lies ahead directly or closely ahead for the people. There is a radical preterist view that says that all the prophecy of the New Testament, including the whole book of Revelation, the second coming, the parousia of Christ is already accomplished. That's a heresy, just pure, straight, simple, heretical. And we will have no truck with that kind of nonsense here, though there are people who hold to that view. And they're, they're kind of Walter Mitty-esque people. Let me just describe the psychology that goes this way. You know Walter Mitty, the secret life of Walter Mitty? Walter Mitty was this little nebbish guy, you know, very, very, very mild, very, very nondescript, very much uh, sort of nothing in life. But in his mind and in his, his imaginations, he was the king of the world. And so the secret life of Walter Mitty is all the things he would have done had he fulfilled the things that were part of his imaginations. But in real life, he was a little clerk, you know, he was a, a nebbish. I think that very often those who take this view that, that the church is already in its glory, that the events of Revelation and, and of Matthew 23 are already fulfilled, are Walter Mitty's. They, they want to live with a glory and claim a glory that's just not evident in their lives, and so they do it vicariously by saying, this is fulfilled, we're part of this. There's a middle ground, and some of you are in that middle ground. You hold to the idea that most of 23 is fulfilled, not all of it. You don't say that Jesus has returned, but you look at Matthew 23 as having been largely accomplished, and I disagree with you. I, I love you, but I'm not holding to that view. I, I can't. I think that the, the idea that the church is in its days of victory that are going to go on and on and on until we usher in a, the kingdom of Christ in the millennium. I believe in the power of the church. I believe in the victory of the church. But there are two things that we have to consider as we think about what Jesus is saying in this chapter. One is the number of times in Matthew, primarily, it's found in the other Gospels, but I'm using Matthew because we've been there, where Jesus says these things are going to take place and in a sense that seems to indicate in your lifetime. The first is Matthew 10, 12, when he tells his disciples, you'll not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And some would claim, well, you know, um, that has been accomplished. Others will say, no, it's still to be accomplished. The, that's not the most important of these. The two more important ones are Matthew 16, verse 28, when Jesus says to his disciples, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom or in his glory. Now, that is pointed to and it said, look, look, these things were fulfilled during the lifetime of the apostles. 
at least some of them were. That view requires a very early date for Revelation. I won't go into it, but almost no scholars at this point hold to an early date of Revelation, nor has the church historically. It's a very telling point against this, that Revelation is seen to happen very late after the sacking of Jerusalem, because people who take this view say, no, Revelation is largely about the events surrounding the sacking of Jerusalem. If it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, then this view is significantly harmed. Am I making sense to you? All right? And so I think, and, and as I preached uh, last year on this, it was, I'm convinced that when he says there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory, that that was fulfilled. The very next thing is him taking three of his disciples up on the mountain and he's transfigured and God says, this is my son. I, I am personally convinced that that's the fulfillment of that statement, that some of them saw it, not all of them. And then in the chapter we're going to look at, um, Matthew 24, verse 34, Jesus says at the end of this sermon, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so the argument is made, look, Jesus is speaking clearly, this generation shall not take, will not pass away until all these things take place. Therefore, all these things are already passed because they took place in the lifetimes of the disciples. There are various ways to understand generation. It's used in a variety of ways. We'll come to that. But in the end, what I, what I, what I believe is that you're, you're forced to deal with these three passages that say in your lifetime, that seem to indicate in your lifetime all these things will take place. And if you say they've all taken place, then we're living in a day of victory. And it's a day of increasing victory and it will, it will end in the great victory of the millennium when Christ returns to a world that's been conquered by the church. All right? That's one view. The other view is that these events are not describing the lifetime or the generation of the disciples when Jesus says this, but he's speaking about the human race and its generation. It's being generated, propagated, living. This generation, this this seed of Adam will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. That view takes a less literal view of these verses, and that's its deficit. It has, I think, a more realistic view of the state of the church today. Am I making sense? I think it's much more realistic to say, no, the church is not experiencing this onward, upward, ever climbing towards the glory of Christ. And that when Jesus in the gospel says, will there be faith on the earth when the Son of Man returns, that that question militates against this triumphalist view. Nevertheless, there are certain impediments to it, chiefly these three passages I read that talk about these events taking place in a lifetime. Those are the two views. I prefer the view that is realistic about our day and I think realistic about what Jesus says about the future of the church and the question of will there be faith. I'd prefer to live that way. You can believe differently and I'll love you, but I'm going to preach on it from the point of view that says these events are 
that there is a dual aspect, that we're looking down a telescope. And as you look through a telescope or binoculars, or if you've seen it with your camera, when you put on the telescope lens, you realize that it collapses many different things. And things that are somewhat close to you and things that are really distant appear almost together. And that's what I believe Christ is doing here. He's speaking about certain things, but there is a greater, further fulfillment that's going to take place. Now, I was going to read Bishop Ryle. I was going to, um, let me just add that the, the view that I have described myself is not holding to, the preterist view, is, a, is relatively novel. Um, it was unheard of at the time of Calvin. Calvin and I are in absolutely full agreement on these things, and so are all the, church, the early church fathers. This new is, view is new, and I think that's another telling point against it. Now, they'll say it's ancient, but it's, it's really not. It was unknown to Calvin. So, uh, as we come to our passage, Jesus has just finished warning Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem that they have denied him and that in denying him and rejecting his love, they have been left a desolate house. Desolate. Desolate. What does desolation bring to your mind as you think about it? The desert, the, the, the ice flows of the Arctic and the Antarctic, it's fruitless, it's empty, it's void. And what Jesus has said is, is the greatest curse that can fall on a house. Your house has been left to you desolate, desolate, empty. Coming home, I had a friend. Father came home, he was a pilot shortly after World War II. He left on a flight to the East Coast. He came back home, back in the days of propeller planes. It's gone a week. Came back. His wife had just had, a, I think, their third child. He came back. And no one answered the door. And he went in. And he found his children all drowned in the bathtub. And his wife having killed herself. Desolate. Desolate. Postpartum desolate. Jesus is saying, behold, your house is left to you. Desolate. Empty. Nothing left. And he says, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a prophecy. Blessed is he. Blessed is the Son of God, the Messiah. Until they acknowledge him, the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. Until he returns, they will not see him. They have seen him. They have seen him. They have seen him. They have rejected him. And now he leaves their house desolate and he says, I'm done. Until my return, you're not going to see me. You won't be given the chance to acknowledge me. Richard Nixon in 1962 had run for governor after losing the race for the presidency to John Kennedy in 60. He ran for California governor. He lost to Pat Brown. And at the end of the race, the day, that, the day after the election, he, he gave a press conference. It's known as the last press conference 
And at the end of that press conference, he turned to the reporters and he said, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. Well, Jesus is saying here, you're not going to see me again, but it's not the self-pity of Richard Nixon. There's not a hint of passive aggression in it. It's a simple truth. I'm done. You've rejected me. Your house is desolate and I'm gone. I'm gone. There's pity in it. He's pitying the people. He's pitying Jerusalem. He's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's weeping over it, but he's saying, it's over. And these days come, and these pronouncements are made by God. They continue to be made. It's not a novel event. All through history, God has said to people, the end, the end. He has come, he has been rejected, he has poured out love and power and teaching and truth. He has been very God, a very God in their midst, but they turned their back on him and now they will pay the piper. And so he says this, you won't see me again. But the disciples respond, and this is the transition between chapter 23 and 24, and Maybe somewhat of, to my mind, an inelegant transition because I think it flows together with what Jesus has just said. His kind of parting statement in the temple, leaving the temple, Jesus is going along, his disciples with him on the way back to Bethany where he spent the night. And his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. We read this in verse 1. They go, huh. Now what are they doing? They are being impressed by the temple. They are tacitly saying, Jesus, look, look at this temple. Jesus has just said, I have left your house to you desolate. It doesn't look desolate to them. It doesn't even look capable of being destroyed. They're saying, look at it. Look at the solidity of this building. Look at the wealth, look at the power, look at the confluence of all these things. If there's one place on earth that's filled with something other than desolation, it's got to be Zion, the city of God, the city of the great king, the place where where Abraham offered Isaac, the city of David, the temple of God, his footstool on earth. They're saying, look, look, they're overawed by the temple. The size, the immensity of the blocks of stone which its foundations were hewed from, they all lead to a sort of dumb incredulity in the disciples. Dumb because we're not even told they say a word. You get the impression here that they merely go, huh? Huh? Desolate? Destroyed? It's beyond measure. It's overpowering this city, this mountain, this temple. It's stupendous. And so there's an unwritten corollary to it. Really, Jesus, really? It's all going to be torn down and left desolate, really? I got a call this past week from a friend, Jeremy Hirely, who started off by saying, so David, you want to know the kind of exciting things civil engineers get to do? And I said, well, sure, I always love it when you tell me what you get to do as a civil engineer. 
No branch of engineering is more fun than civil engineering. You can drive by anything and say, Jeremy, what is this? And he'll know. So I've done that for years. And today, the other day, it was him telling me what he was doing. And he said, well, I've got to get rid of 4 million dead chickens and 12 million chicken eggs. Uh, wow. That's like, huh? <laughs> A throw your hands in the air kind of task. <laughs> How do you go about getting rid of 4 million chickens, 12 million eggs? This was the uh, avian virus in Defiance County. Well, Jeremy has a plan, all right? And Jeremy's plan is being affected even now, okay? But it's the same kind of throw your arms in the air task that, that the destruction of the temple seems to the disciples. Herod's temple was one of the wonders of the world. It was the Israelite version of the great pyramids of Egypt, and particularly the great pyramid of Giza. That great pyramid, the one of Giza, stands nearly 500 feet tall with 93 million cubic feet of, of rock in its volume. And it stood there nearly 4,600 years since it was built. Estimates are that the Great Pyramid required an average of 13,000 workers working on it over a period of 27 years. Herod's Temple, you know that pyramid, it looks like you could set an atom bomb off next to it and it would still be standing, the foundation would still be there. Herod's Temple, this temple that the disciples are dumbly pointing to, to Christ and saying, huh? It's still under construction at this very day it has been continually worked on for the past 46 years. Josephus writes that 10,000 workers were employed in the building of this temple. It is very much an accomplishment in the work entailed in it, the building up of the mountain of the temple. If you've been there, you know those rocks. They are massive. It is incredible. They basically built a mountain to put the temple on top of. The temple mount was much smaller. They made a massive mountain and then on top of that mountain they constructed a stupendous temple. And to hear Jesus pronounce destruction and desolation on Jerusalem, this city that is going to now be empty and forlorn can only mean the destruction of that temple. As long as the temple stands and the worship of the temple is ongoing, then Jerusalem stands. It's not desolate. The center of Jerusalem is the temple. It's the glory of the city. Jerusalem is really the temple, and the temple is Jerusalem. As long as the temple stands, the city stands. The city can't fall without the temple being destroyed. Jerusalem is, in Scripture, the city of Zion, the resting place of God the city of the great king, the footstool of the God Almighty's throne. How can it be destroyed? The disciples can't imagine it. The idea is beyond their ability to envision. But Jesus, we read, answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here is going to be left on another which will not be torn down. It is going to be torn down. Now, the disciples don't just point stupidly to the buildings. Their pointing is, of course, an objection. 
They're implicitly saying, really? Are you certain? Can it be? And so Jesus answered and said to them. It's a statement that is written by Matthew in the Greek that many translations obscure by having it read only, and Jesus said to them. But didn't, Jesus didn't just say to them, Jesus answered. They point, and Jesus answers. It implies a question, and they're pointing, an objection. So Jesus answered and said to them. Translations that leave out answered say, ah, it's, it's superfluous. We don't need that word. But it, it indicates the nature of the exchange that's going on there. His replying is, is to an implicit objection here. The temple destroyed. Destroyed. This life as we know it. Done. Really? No. Can't be. How can it be? And of course, this is you. You point to all the things in your life, all the things that surround you, all the things that you've worked for, all the things that the culture has provided you, all the things of the government, your schools, your institutions, even buildings like this, and you say, huh, really? No. God, you wouldn't just throw it all away, would you? No, no, no. It can't be. You won't do it. This is us, over and over and over again. We say, really? When God says, finished. When God says, done, we say, is that so? When God says, vain, we say, ah, it's something. When God says, vapor, we say, well, there's breath. When God says, ended, we say, well, not yet. So each of you and I myself are tiny, little, personal Nebuchadnezzars. We are many kings, many emperors, many potentates. We can't imagine the demise of our own world, let alone of our own lives. Warned by God, as Nebuchadnezzar was, that his day was coming and that he would be laid low and forced to live as a beast of the field because of his ego, because of his pride, because he did not acknowledge God in his accomplishments, Nebuchadnezzar was initially chastened for a moment. But he soon returned to that egotism that is all of ours. Nah, not really, God. You're not going to bring it all down, nah. And so he goes on the roof of his temple, and he looks out over the city of Babylon, his kingdom, and he boasts to himself, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal house by the strength of my power and the, or the glory of my majesty? Now, those words are none that you have ever said. You haven't said this kingdom, royal, strength of my power, glory of my majesty. Those are king's words, but you're a mini potentate, right? And you say, you know, I got my act together. Look what I've done. I've done a few things. You don't claim a kingdom, but you say, but here, here in my sports, in my, in my intelligence, in my academic success, in my, I, I won this girl for, as my wife and this. You say, I did it. I did it. There are moments in life when time stops. When all of a sudden the clock doesn't continue ticking. And those are moments when you realize that the evil you feared but dismissed has suddenly come upon you. You're driving 70 miles per hour down the expressway. You're looking at your phone. 
you look up and you see that the traffic has stopped and you know that you're going to hit something. Some of you have had an experience like this and you know how time stops and you're in that sort of interregnum, that period between two different dispositions and dispensations. You know, like, there was this time and, and now there's this time. And we haven't arrived yet, but it's coming. You can see it. You're using a knife to cut You're working with the knife and it slips and it goes way deep into your tongue, into your thumb and you can see the tendons, you can see the ligaments. And you stand there and you look at that cut and it hasn't even begun to bleed. And the pain hasn't even hit you yet. And you know that there was a before and a now and you're right between them because in a moment the blood and the pain are going to be on you but you stand there and you look at it. You go out for a date with your boyfriend and things have been a little weird between you, but on that date, the boyfriend says, I I wanna talk to you about our relationship. And suddenly, you know that the next few moments are gonna change your whole orientation in life. You were there, you're not there, but you're not here, but you see here. Time stops. The thing you feared, the thing you lived in denial of is happening. It happens to Nebuchadnezzar. While the word was in the king's mouth, Babylon the great, I made it, I built it, it's my royal house, the strength of my power, the glory of my majesty. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it said, your kingdom has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the most high is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and he gives it to whomever he wishes. And the voice is heard and Nebuchadnezzar knows it. He knows this voice. He knows that when Daniel has said something's going to happen, it happens. And there was the past, his glory, and there is the future, his humiliation. And he stands and listens to the voice. This moment is still ahead for the disciples. They hear Christ's pronouncement, but they can't recognize it, they can't see it, it seems to them impossible. Impossible that God will do this to his temple, hurting his own worship. Impossible that God would do this to his city, Jerusalem, the city of God. It's suffered enough over the last 500 years. Is there going to be more? It's impossible that God would savage his people by destroying their worship of him and their temple. They're his. But God has decreed an end. God decrees an end to his temple, to his worship, even to the ongoing national life of his people. And God has decreed an end in heaven, not just to Nebuchadnezzar and to the temple, but to many of the things that you take as verities, established truths, foundational things that you build your life on. 
this nation, America, will fall. Now, I don't know when, I don't know how, but God has decreed the fall of America. The God who destroyed Sodom will not forego his judgment on this nation. God has decreed an end to our empire. I remember the day in the 1980s when President Reagan suggested that as president or just shortly after, but I think it was during his presidency, that America would be the nation, the empire that unlike Rome would never fall. He said it could be. And I remember thinking, oh, President Reagan, don't. Nebuchadnezzar, be quiet, man. Be quiet. And so I call you to envision this desolation because that's what Jesus is calling the people of Jerusalem to do and his disciples to do and it's what they're warring against. They won't imagine it. Imagine destruction. Imagine the destruction of all you hold dear, your home, your town, your city, your government, your nation, your church. This is all comprehended. This is all part of what Jesus has told the disciples. It's gone. No wonder they go, no. But Jesus, this is not the only time that he says it's going to end in his ministry. His ministry is a ministry of saying to people, hey, it's going to end. Hey, it's going to end. Live as though it's going to end. Live in the understanding that there is an end ahead. Do not store up treasure on this world where moth and rust destroy and thieves come in and steal. But lay up treasure in heaven. It's the exact same statement he's making here to his disciples, to Jerusalem. He tells the parable of the rich man whose barns weren't big enough to hold his wealth. So he planned to make them even bigger. God said to him, you fool, living for this world. You fool, do you not know that this very night you're going to die? He tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man in Hades, in punishment, asking Father Abraham to send Lazarus, the poor beggar from paradise, to warn his brothers on earth that hell is real. Abraham says it's too late. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they are not going to listen to a man who returns from the dead. Take stock, Jesus is saying. Don't wait until it's happened. He tells of the man who built his house on the rock, on the word of God, but the fool who built his house on shifting sand without foundation. And the floods came. The floods always come. The floods come. And the house of the wise man who built on Christ stands, but the house of the fool is wiped away. 
He tells us that heaven is like a great pearl, a great hidden treasure, and that when you find it, what should you do? You should sell everything you have to gain it. Give up everything to have it. He tells the rich young ruler, sell all you have. Give to the poor to gain eternal life. Over and over and over again, beginning in Sermon on the Mount and throughout his entire ministry, Jesus is telling you that you need to sever the ties that hold you bound to this life and the things of this world if you're going to have him. Over and over again. Mother and father, sister and brother, son and daughter. You have to hate your own life if you're going to keep it. You have to be willing to separate from your family. You must give away all your wealth. You cannot have the kingdom of heaven and the wealth that is the, the unrighteous wealth of this world. It's not joking. It's not hyperbole. It's not Jesus establishing a, an initial price in bargaining that as he haggles, he'll come down on and say, okay, uh, yeah, I did say, give me your all, but okay, we'll settle for 30%. It's not. He doesn't do that. It is the demand of God. And I've thought recently about differences that exist between me and my children. And I'm very proud of my children most of the time. I'm very happy that Isaiah is not as often the butt of my comments during a sermon. But I have noticed that my children are sort of casual about when they leave saying, love you. Isaiah is actually probably the best of them. They're kind of casual about it. And I'm not casual about saying I love you to people. I say it all the time. And I say it all the time, I was thinking about why it is and why I'm kind of offended at times by their casual, like I say, I love you, and they say, yeah, I love you. And I, I'm convinced it's because of a gift God gave me, a real gift that very few people have today. And that's the gift of growing up in a family where death was always right around the corner. You know, I told you, both brothers who died before I was born, one of cystic fibrosis, one of leukemia, sort of established an atmosphere in the home of, of death being around, you know? It wasn't a frightened atmosphere. It wasn't a negative atmosphere, but death was real. And then when I was nearly five, my 18-year-old brother died, and the light of my parents' life went out for seven or eight years. Third brother who died. And... That's when we started saying, I love you, every time we said goodbye as a family. But it wasn't just my three older brothers. It was my younger brother who had cystic fibrosis. I remember reading in Reader's Digest that the, the, the lifespan of a, of a child with CF had risen from four years over the last decade to, thir to 12 or 13 years and, and showing it to my brother. He wasn't that age yet, but saying, you're going to die by 13, Nathan. I was, sort of unkind, but it was also realistic. And, of course, there was always the, at least in my parents' eyes, I don't think I ever thought in my own eyes that I was going to die, but my parents had seen my brother die of hemophilia, and I was in the hospital a lot. And every time I went in, I could see death in my dad's eyes. I 
and living in the knowledge of the certainty of death changed us. That's why I say, I love you. I don't want to live in fear. I don't live in fear. I tell my kids, do risky things. Go ahead. Because I know God is real. And that death is not the worst thing. Death is not the worst thing. Sin is. Sin is so much worse than death. So I'm preaching this morning to all of you pretty girls, you talented boys, you popular young men, you smart young women, you successful careerists, you advancing professionals, you fruitful parents and proud grandparents. I'm calling you to remember what Christ proclaims here to Jerusalem, that city of glory, and to his disciples. Remember the grave. Remember the grave. Remember that you will die. Remember that it will all pass away. Like flowering grass, the rich man will pass away. For the sun rises like flowering grass, the beautiful woman will pass away. Like flowering, gra- flowering grass, the, the successful career will pass away. Warren Buffett, boy, he's wealthy. Boy, he's kept it together a long time. But each tick of the clock brings him closer to being no different than anyone. You will die you will return to dust. The grass wither, the flower fades when the breath of Jehovah blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flowers. When the wind has passed over it, he is no more. And his place acknowledges him no longer. But the loving kindness, Jehovah, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to your children's children. Do you want the wealth, the accomplishments of this world? Or do you want the love of God? which is from everlasting to everlasting, and his righteousness to your children. This is a hard lesson for us all. Zion will fall, churches will fall, kingdoms will be judged, empires will be done in, proud cities leveled, armies defeated, families divided, homes left desolate. So I encourage you, think about everything you value, all your possessions, the things that you've saved for, the things that you guard as crowning achievement of your life, all gone. Your security, wherever you find it. Your children, your money, your investments, gone. Your children. Rising against you, not knowing the Lord, think of that. Your reputation destroyed, your home lost and plundered, your job gone, your car stolen, you yourself physically facing your end. Look at yourself naked, 
like the day you were born, like Job, destitute of all. And then remember as Job did, though he slay me, I will put my hope in him. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin, even this body is destroyed, then without my flesh shall I see God. Jesus is standing with outstretched arms, beckoning and saying, come to me. Stood in the temple and said, if you want water that you will never thirst again, living water, come to me, all you who thirst and are hungry, come to me and I will feed you. People said, nah, we don't need it. But you need Jesus. You must have Jesus. If you have Jesus and nothing else, you're the richest man or woman on earth. You must have Jesus. Don't put it off. Don't despise Jesus and love your car or your vacation home or your IRA. Love Jesus. When you go to the Boundary Waters, if you've gone there with me, you know that nowadays I pull out my phone and I look at the GPS and I know exactly where to go. But growing up, going to the Boundary Waters, the lakes, the chain of lakes, you had to read it on a map and it was different than looking at GPS. You didn't know where you were. And always on a trip, when you're in the Boundary Waters, there's a certain amount of, a certain amount of contention about the path, you know? Like, if I have the map and it's my turn, to be the navigator, and I'm in the stern of a canoe, you can bet that my older brother who's in the other canoe is going to have a better idea. He always does, you know? Nowhere do you see this more in, in, in effect than in, in going through the lakes of the Boundary Waters, because if you decide the portage is down that mile-long little bay, rather than that one, you'll go an hour down there, you'll look for another 15 minutes, really go an hour there and back, and you'll look 15 and you'll spend an hour and a half and you'll be stinking tired because the wind's against you coming back to go to the next bay. So it really means something that you choose the right bay, that you know where you're going. And what you can be certain of is that if I've said it's down here and my brother's saying, I don't think so, I think it's this one, David. I don't think you're reading the map right that I will say, no, it's this one. And we'll go down there. And I'll start seeing things as I go down this, this bay. Don't quite comport with the map, but you know those maps are hard to read. They, uh, they're not really all that big. And so you, you know, is that a shoal? Is that an island? Is that, it's really hard. And so you'll say, no, we're going to go down here. And you start going down and you see, well, I don't know, but I'll be hanged if I'm going to turn around now for two reasons. One is I'm not going to let Tim know I have doubts, right? No way am I going to give him the satisfaction of doubting. But the other one, of course, is that you're halfway down it and you think, well, I may as well go the whole way. It's the principle that your husband holds out. When you say, I think you were supposed to turn back there and you say, your husband says to you, nope, we're going on. You know, you say, I think it was back there. Well, it becomes a matter of pride and it becomes a matter of obstinance and it becomes a matter of the guy saying, well, I can figure it out even if it was back there, right? This is how we end up dying and going to hell. 
we start down a path. We've gone down it too long to back out. We've invested too much in it, and our pride is involved. And so we won't listen to Jesus who says, stop, stop, live for me. Jesus is standing with outstretched arms to Jerusalem, but to the whole world, and saying, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And you say, I don't need rest. You say, death is far away in my mind. You say, ah, okay, one day. The offer is now. Will you repent? Will you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I must have you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Christ and his glory and for the privilege, I thank you, of preaching about him. But I pray, Father, I will be found in him, that I will live for him. And may all of us, Father, remember all that Christ says about this world and its impermanence and the glory of the life that he will give if we submit to him. Give us submission. Give us faith. In Jesus' name, amen.